Okay, good evening. Thanks for coming. First, an important announcement. Um, next week, Monday's class is going to be moved to Tuesday. Okay, so next week, Monday night's class is going to happen on Tuesday night. Um, same time at 8 o'clock, just one week only. The coming week, Monday's class is going to be on Tuesday, not on Monday night. Just a heads up on that. Also, there will not be a Thursday night class this week. Okay, so there's no Thursday night class. And next week, the class will resume on Tuesday, not on Monday. That's the announcement. Um, secondly, um, tonight's class, I have a very challenging um, sponsorship. Usually a sponsor is in dedication of some kind of a merit. Today's sponsorship is a sponsorship with a message. Now, with divine providence, unbelievable, the person who gave me that sponsorship didn't, had no clue that his dedication, which is very unique and, and very different than any other sponsorship I've ever had, um, generally wouldn't have any connection to what I'm speaking about tonight or on that night. But tonight, he happened to hit the nail on the head to give me a sponsorship for something that I think hits right to the very, very, very essence of what this entire class is all about, even though it's really a unique sponsorship. So let me first say and what the dedication is for. Dedication is for as follows. This year, Hanukkah, which we're coming soon into the month of Kislev, we're about a, well, the truth is we're about a month away from the beginning of Hanukkah, is interesting that the Hebrew calendar, the Jewish calendar, the last day of Hanukkah comes out on the secular New Year's Day, on January 1st. So Hanukkah, so uh, and um, and that's very unique. Okay, and uh, to that that happens. Like we're, 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 when do we remember something like that happening? So everything is by divine providence. So their their uh, his inspiration for this dedication was that being that people are very motivated on New Year's Day. Of course, on Rosh Hashanah, on our New Year's Day, this is done in a very, very deep soul, from a very core, essential soul essence, in where we look ahead over the New Year and we make the deepest commitments to keep and to fulfill our mission in this world, what God has put us here for. However, when it comes to New Year's Day, uh, people also make New Year resolutions. Um, and those New Year resolutions um, that people make also, you know, have inspiration and people want to make a difference, which is really good. So, however, the dedication that of tonight is just that people should hear a message. What's the message? That on this year, the last day of Hanukkah, when it comes out on New Year's Day, people should do something for themselves. Small. And I'm not, we're not talking about something big, but do something for yourself that will make you happy. Just now, small thing. You can go get yourself a latte that will make you happy. Or you can do your nails. Or you can, if you're, of course, if you're late. Or you can, um, I don't know, buy a book that you wanted to read and read. So you're doing something for yourself. Now, since when is a Hasidic center and Manusrop, um 
um, in, um, endorsing or encouraging doing something for yourself. And taking add in that, uh, we usually talk about the spiritual meaning of the holidays, not necessarily the meaning of a New Year's secular day. But I think he hit the nail on the head in this dedication in regards to what we're going to talk about tonight, which is really interesting. I'm just going to say that the fact that it's New Year Day on the secular calendar highlights, because he didn't tell me the connection of that Hanukkah, but I do think there's something very deep over here. You see, doing something for yourself can be extremely, extremely dangerous and the opposite of holiness. But doing something for yourself can actually be an act of the, of the deepest and highest levels of holiness, which we're going to talk about tonight. So, New Year's Day, generally, being that it's part of the secular counting of time, which the secular counting of time is not in submission to higher godliness. So it's more dedicated to self. But that kind of self, on its own, without Hanukkah, is not illuminated by the light of holiness. So that kind of self can be lead to self-absorption and self, and therefore uh, to become completely obsessed with self, which is totally the opposite of holiness. But when you have eight days of Hanukkah preceding New Year's Day, with all of that light and all of that godly awareness, and when you introduce that into the New Year's Day, which calls you to take back yourself, not to dismiss yourself, but to recall yourself and give yourself something, that kind of giving yourself something could be, with the right attitude, as we're going to see, a very, very, very special and good and positive influence in your life. Okay, so let's see if by the end of the class today, this will make sense. All right. But I, I, I'm stunned by the, by the divine providence of this happening. Okay, um, to say that I know what I'm talking about tonight um, and to say that I understand what I'm talking about tonight would be not, I would be lying. So I, I'm going to say clearly, I was, uh, spent the last two days at a conference um, for something uh, uh, and um, as a result of that, it didn't give the class the attention it deserves, like I usually try to do. Um, so I'm going to speak from a place where I'm lacking clarity. Uh, I'm teaching some very deep ideas tonight. I would have wished that I had the time to really, 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 really work it out much, much better. I hope and I pray to God, I pray to Hashem that He should give me the clarity while we're teaching so that you don't walk out confused, but you walk out with insight and um, some, some very, very important understanding. Okay. But that has been said, now we go to Parshas Chayesara. The Parsha this week, Parshas Chayesara, begins with a Pasuk, um, where we're celebrating Sarah, 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 our mother, the first mother of the Jewish people. We're celebrating Sarah's life. And the Pasuk begins with, Vayi Chayesara, it was the life of Sarah, a hundred years, twenty years, seven years. And then it says, Shnei Chayesara, the years of the life of Sarah. Now, if anybody, we're all, we learn Chumash all the time. It, as far as I know, 
anywhere in the Torah, we don't find such emphasis on the life, summarizing the life of a human being. Of course, in the end of the Torah, we talk about Moshe Rabbeinu, we speak about the Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't speak so much about his days in this world. It speaks about the greatness of Moshe as a, as a human being. He spoke to God, Panim al Panim, there never was another man as great as Moshe, humble, this, that. And of course, it does say, early in the parish, it says, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I am 120 years old today. You don't see such an emphasis on the days, the years, counting the days, the time that the person lived. We do find other tzaddikim and other generations. The Torah says this person lived so long, this person lived so long. But in Sarah, first of all, it's the first pasuk in a parsha, and the whole parsha is named after it. The entire parsha is called Chaye Sarah, the, the life of Sarah, which we don't find by anyone else. In addition to that, um, the emphasis over here is. Um, in addition, there's three things. The Pasuk begins, and it was the life of Sarah. Then it enumerates the years, but even when it enumerates the years, it enumerates each segment of years separately. Instead of saying she lived 127 years, it says she lived 100 years, and 20 years, and 7 years. And Rashi explains already what that means. It comes to draw a comparison between all these three segments of time. But you don't find this by anybody else, that there should be separate individuals. And then the Pasuk repeats again, Shnei Chaye Sarah, the years of the life of Sarah. And obviously you're talking about the Bible, talking about the Chumash, talking about every word is infinitely meaningful and godly. Like we spoke last week, we brought the Zohar last week, how anybody that thinks the Torah is just telling you stories, chronicle of life, is just totally missing the whole thing. There is the deepest secrets hidden over here. So we need to know why is the Torah celebrating Sarah's life with such, with such reverence more than any other human being that we find. So the Medrash uh, states something about, this is actually the first tzaddik, in this case tzaddikas, who's passing away. Now the truth is, Adam and Chava, they were tzaddikim. Noach is also a tzaddik. And shame is a tzaddik, yeah, fine. But those were tzaddikim in which we, um, Adam and Chava, tzaddik and tzaddikis, but they failed. And the taste that we have from them is a taste of failure. We know that they're very big tzaddikim, but there is a taste of failure. Noach, uh, also we have, we have him getting drunk in the end of his life. We have, uh, he doesn't leave this world kind of in that perfect state. Um, uh, Avram and Sarah, this is where the world turns around and humanity begins to stand up, get back up on its feet from the great fall of the sin of the Eitz We see basically Olam Hatikun is starting over here. And the first successful com- uh, a couple that made a change in the world, not only they were tzaddikim themselves, but made an influence in the world, changed the dynamics of all of creation, um, that was Avram and Sarah. So, and she's, she dies before Avram. So the Medrash says, Yedeya Hashem, Yedeya Hashem, Yemei Temimim, there was a over there, I think it is. God knows the days of the righteous, of those that are complete people. Hashem knows their days, which means, and the Medrash says, it's chaviv, it is precious by God, the life of the, the life of a tzaddik and a tzaddikas 
A righteous man and a righteous woman, a saintly man and a saintly woman, is precious by God. In what way is it precious by God? Um, double preciousness. Preciousness in this world and precious their life in this world and their life in the world to come. Because they live twice. We don't just live in this world. But by, in Hashem, the life of the world to come, well, everybody's precious there because whoever is in the world to come is in a very, over there there's no more evil, there's no more ra, everybody's clean and holy and godly. So there's no chiddush that everything is precious in the world to come. It's to be precious in this world. So tzaddikim who lived a holy, moral, godly life, then their, their life is precious in this world and in the world to come. And that's what the Medrash says. That's why the Pasuk repeats two times the life of Sarah. Vayehi chaye Sarah, and it was the life of Sarah. And it tells you one time. And then at the end it repeats again. Shnei chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah repeated again. Referring to the life in this world and the life in the world to come. Fine, that's a Medrash. Now, uh, to understand a little better what does this mean. And that the, in other words, there is a continuum of preciousness, of affection, that God quells, the Ebershter delights. In Yiddish there's a word quelling. Quelling means he did, like a parent. God is like a parent, like a parent really. He is the essential parent. And, and a parent takes out a, a, a album and they look at all the stages in their child's life. They look at the first picture or oh, that little, little scrunchy little thing right after, you know, unclothed still before they had their first, uh, right when he came out of the mother. And looked, right? And everyone, it looks like a little scrunchy little thing. But to the mother and to the father, it's like, wow. Man. And then you see all the cute stages of the child and their, and their kindergarten and their nursery and their, you know, and they're moving through and their camp pictures and uh, graduation and, and then wedding pictures. And then, and then when you have the children of your pictures of your children holding their children, the grandchildren, and then you watch that. And, it, and a parent, there's a hard, I don't know if there's a good, there's no good English word. In Yiddish, there's a word, kfeling. Kfeling is like, it's the deep sensation and delight that doesn't get explained in words. So God kills from the life of who? From the life of a tzaddik. Everything. And it's one without a, without a stop. Life in this world and life in the world to come. How does that work? Why is that? And what is the meaning of that? In particular, it says it's in regards to Sarah. Because Sarah, uh, it says, her life, in, she lived in this world and in the world to come. Which the Sfasemes, the great Hasidic master, the Sfasemes, the Gera Rebbe, uh, sees it as follows. You know, we have two lives. We have two lives because when we're living in this world, our life is about the here and the now. We get caught up in the momentary existence of the here and the now. And then there is world to come, a higher life. Tzaddikim are continuously living with the understanding, with an awareness of the futuristic world. And the futuristic world meaning a world filled, filled with godliness, filled with holiness. And they know that this world that we're living right now is a preparation. It is a, here's where we get the work done so that we can usher in a world to come. So it comes out that the two lives are connected. It's not like chapter one, chapter two, where it's like, a, or rather, it is chapter one and chapter two. It's chapter one and chapter two of the same book as opposed to being a whole different story. Um, and that's a tzaddik's life. And particularly it says in regards to Sarah, so the Medrash Tanchuma, in this week's parasha, the Medrash, different Medrash, what I quoted before was the Medrash Rabbah. So the Medrash Tanchuma says an interesting thing on the Pasuk, that Avram Avinu, beautifully, if you take a look at this Medrash, 
the Medrash this week in the Parsha, Medrash Tanchuma, says that on the Pasuk, Eishes Chayil Ateres Baila, a woman of valor is the crown of her husband. The Medrash says that that is referring to Avram, Avinu, who saw Sarah as the crown, Ateres Baila, the crown of his crown. And that's why the Pasuk describes how Avram is weeping after Sarah passed away. Avram Avram comes lispoid lesara to eulogize Sarah uliv kaisa and to cry for her. So here you find that Avram I mean, doesn't. The Torah doesn't share. We find the two places. We find by Yaakov Avinu how distraught he was after Rachel passed away, and and he was only appeased by Yosef. But we don't even even there we don't find Yaakov crying for Rachel. We don't find the Torah saying it. But by Avram it says that he was lost kind of without her. And it says in the Medrash that Avram, the Eishas Chayel, who, who originally said Eishas Chayel, Avram Avinu sang Eishas Chayel when Sarah passed away. And, he, and, and the Medrash goes on to say how every part of Eishas Chayel, that was his eulogy. And every part of Eishas Chayel is referring to Sarah. And we go through the Medrash says that this Batach Balev Baila, her husband trusted her, was when they went down to Egypt and he asked her, please say you're my sister. And, and it goes through the, their whole lives together, and it shows how each Pasuk is referring to another nuance, another aspect in Sarah's life. When it gets to the Pasuk, Zamama Sadeh Vatikacheyu, it says, Zamama Sadeh, she was looking for a field, she was, she was, Zamama means she was working hard to get something. Zamama Sadeh, she was, she desired, she wanted, she was uh, seeking out Sadeh a field, Vatikacheyu, and she got it. What does that mean? She wanted a very, very special burial site. Uh, she knows that what? That she's not going to live forever and time is going to come. But she's already thinking in her life, where am I going to be buried? And she sought out the best place to be buried. She was because Avram bought for her, even though it doesn't say, it really doesn't say anywhere in the Torah that Sarah and Avram had this discussion earlier where they're going to be buried. But yet, it seems like from the Medrash that it was Sarah's idea. Because you see that Avram goes immediately to the Ephron and he says, I want that Machpelah place. Why is he doing that? It could, so it seems almost like Sarah had instructed him before. From the Medrash, Zama Masada, this was her desire. She looked for the choicest burial site. Now why in the world is someone, I mean, you're alive, have a good time, live, enjoy, party. <laughs> you're living. The idea of thinking about a burial site means that someone is looking forward, that life is... That life is purpose beyond the here and that purposeful beyond the here and the now. I have a bigger outlook. But as we're going to see soon, the idea is much deeper than that. Sarah is looking at the place where she's going to be buried because her, her burial itself is going to be part of her rectification in which she's going to rectify the world. Sarah is looking to be buried in Ma'ara Samachpela in Hebron. Because that's where Adam and Chava are buried. Adam and Eve are buried over there. And she wanted to be buried over there, not just to be in good company, or in a, or in a place of great, you know, historic significance. It says that, that Ephron had no idea what's in his field. He didn't, he didn't have any idea that Adam and Chava, the first human being, is buried there. Or else he would have never sold it. Or he would have sold it like for crazy. He did charge a very, very high price. But nothing had he known what's really going on in his field. He had no idea. Fine. 
But why did Sarah really, really want to be buried over there? The real reason she wanted to be buried over there was because she wanted to rectify Adam and Chava. In other words, they created some kind of a mess, and Sarah was going down into their, into the place of their injury. Now, what's the injury of Adam and Eve? The injury of Adam and Chava is death. So the only way she can rectify their boo-boo is to actually go down to their boo-boo and fix it in the place where the boo-boo is, where the wound is. So where was their wound? Their wound is death. So she had to go down into the tunnels of death and over there do a rectification. And how do we see that she was successful? Well, the Pasuk says immediately, Vayakom stay Ephron. That when, when Avram made the exchange and he buried Sarah over there, Vayakom, the field stood up. Now the field getting up, let's think about that. what that really means in a deeper level. The field getting up is related to Tchias HaMesim when all the dead are going to get up. In other words, the beginning of Tchias HaMesim, of the resurrection of dead, happened by, when Sarah was buried, she began the process. She started Tchias HaMesim. She sparked, let's say even better than that, after she began, she sparked the spark of life into the, the, the place where till now was pure death. She went into the root of death and, and injected one spark of life. And Adam and Chava came alive a tiny little bit, enough that they will be able to be resurrected when, when the time comes. And through Adam and Chava being resurrected, all of, you, all of their children will be resurrected. It's all just a, it's, we're all branches of Adam and Chava. But Sarah goes down to spark the spark. She goes there to ignite life. Why? Because um, Sarah and Chav, Adam, Avram and Sarah rather, are responsible for Tchias HaMesim. They're the ones who bring about Tchias HaMesim. This is our thought of the Sfasemes. And he explains why and how. So here this amazing idea. This amazing idea. So first of all, this idea that Avram, and, Avram is doing a... So it says the Zohar is an interesting thing. Um, the Zohar states that when Avram brought Sarah to be buried, Adam and Chava stood up, and they, I guess even though they were dead, 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 but they got up. And they were ready to leave. And Avram said, where are you going? We came here. Like, and they said, we're leaving. We're embarrassed. Or they said, why? In front of you, we feel very ashamed. We are big sinners. We did such a terrible sin. You're great. And they said like this, we after 2,000 years, we're still ashamed of the sin that we did. And you're coming next to us. You're such a tzaddik and such a tzaddik. And you're bringing this tzaddikus next to us. You're bringing this tzaddikus next to add to our shame. Because now Hashem is going to look at us compared to Sarah. And, and, and what is he going to say? These are failures and these are tzaddikim. So we feel uncomfortable being next to you. So Avram said, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to take care of it. In the end, he convinced Adam to go back to sleep. And Adam goes back into his grave. But Chava didn't want to go. Chava was still ashamed. So says the Zohar. Chava's shame was deeper than Adam's shame. We can think because she was the one who began the sin of the Eitz Adas. 
So her shame was deeper. So Adam actually had to take, so Avram had to take Chava by the hand, and he brought her back to Adam. And that's what it means when it says, Vayikaver, and he buried S. Sarai. He buried, doesn't say he buried Sarah. He says S. Sarah. Whenever there is an S, it comes to add. Because when that, at that moment, Avram buried Sarah and Chava. Because Chava had to be reburied again. Anyways, he calmed her down. But you see from, what does he mean calming down? I mean, if he didn't, he said, I'm going to pray. But what is the meaning? What, what were they thinking before? What were they thinking now? And the answer is, he just illuminated their death and gave them an infusion of life. Because Avram and Sarah brought about, they opened up Trias Amesim. Where do we see this idea? That Avram and Sarah are the responsible for Trias Amesim? It's an interesting thing. The sages tell us that, how do you know that Trias Amesim in HaTorah? Where do we know in the prophets there is explicit statements where it talks about the dead coming alive? In the Torah, it doesn't say anywhere openly. It's alluded to in a few different places. And the sages say, one of the places, where do we know that there is Tchias HaMesim in the Torah? So it says, in, um, the Pasuk says, Laman Yirbu Yemeichem V'yemei V'neichem I will increase your days. We say, Al Aras Hashem Nishba Hashem L'Avaseichem the land that that God has sworn. Here, let me tell you one second. Here, it says, um, so "You will increase your land your, on the land that God swore to your fathers to give to them." So, since it says He'll give it to them, this is implying that God is giving the land to Avram. But Avram died already before God gave Israel to the Jewish people. That only happened when Yeshua brought the Jewish people in many years later. Um, so what does it mean that he swore to them? This teaches you that they are going to be back again. Avram is going to be back again. And the emphasis is, Ki hashamayim, like the days of heaven. What does it mean like the days of heaven? Like the days, he swore to them like the days of heaven that are on the earth. It says that from here to the sky, to the heaven, whatever the sages mean by this, I don't know the scientific significance of this. But obviously it's got very, very deep meaning. The sages say from here to the first heaven is 500 years. Whatever that means, 500 years of walking or going by a train or going by a spaceship. I don't know. But the distance from here to heaven, to the first of the firm of the heavens, the seven heavens, is 500 years. Now, that, that means the days of the heaven, it means as long as it takes to go to heaven. Which is what? 500 years. Now if you take a look at the days of our fathers, who? Not, not our mothers, our fathers. And we count the lives of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov together. Let's see how, how long they lived. Avram lived, to, Avram lived 175. To 100. Yitzhak lived 180. So 180 plus 175 is 355. Okay? Yaakov lived 147. So 147, so plus 355, is 502. So that means the lives of the others together, if you add up their life, the full life of Avram, the full life of Yitzchak, and the full life of Yaakov, it's 502. 
which is the same amount as how long it, the, the days of the heaven. But hold it, it's an extra two years. Well, Avram's first two years don't count because he was two years old. And he's three years old when he recognized his creator. So until he was two years old, he was still a Gentile. He was still a pagan kid. He didn't know his creator. When he's three years old is when his mind opened up and he had that realization of, the, the, uh, of Hashem. So it comes out that how many years did they live in their amuna and their awareness of God? 500 years. So kimei hashamayim, like the days of heaven. And what does it say from here? That this is tchias hamesim. And from here we know tchias hamesim, kimei hashamayim, like the days of heaven. So you see that the others, their lives, the lives of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, which begins with the first couple, Avram and Sarah, are related to the rectification of tchias hamesim. Okay? Now watch this amazing idea. There is a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. And the Mishnah Pekayava says like this. This is the last Mishnah in, cha- in Ethics of Fathers, in the fourth chapter in e- Ethics of Fathers. It mentions a sage by the name Rabbi Elazar HaKapar. Rabbi Elazar HaKapar, a sage, and he said like this, Hayaludim Lamos. Very, very difficult to understand what he's talking about. But he makes a, state, a statement about life. He says, those that are born are destined to die. Vahamesim lichyos. But those that are dead, what do they have to look forward to? Those that are alive have something to look forward to, not too exciting. They're going to die. But all those that are dead, they don't have to be worried about dying. They died already. So what do they have now to look forward to? What's the next thing on the agenda? To come alive again. So the living are destined to die, the dead are destined to live. Now, v'hachayim, and those who will come alive after the resurrection, are going to give an ultimate reckoning. That's when there is going to be the great reckoning. Lidon to be judged by Hashem, who is going to judge us all favorably. and fine. After, especially because after we've done our purification through dying and cleansing, everybody then is already in a state of purity. We will be judged. And then what happens after that? After that, Leida, all of this is to bring us to a point where Leida to know, Lohidia to make known, Ulihi Vada and to become known. Shohu Kale, that God is a real God, that God is God. What will it take for us to know? Do you know? Do you know? There's a, yeah, of course I know. To really, really, really know it with every fiber of your being that there is a God, it will take. What will it take? It will take all the living to die, all the dead to become alive again, to be judged by the ultimate judge, and only after that we will know that He is God. He is Ayotzer, He is the one who forms everything. He Abore, He was the one who created everything. Who are Maven, He understands. Who are Dayan, He's the judge. Who are Aid, He's the witness. Who bowed in. The whole thing, we get to know God, what? Only after these phases. Comes out that there was a certain destiny to humanity. The world needed to reach. Because God created the world, it was to become intimate with us. Hashem wanted a relationship with us. But there are four phases for it. Had we, had we never died, we would never reach it. And guess what? Here's the most astounding thing. I, I, when I saw this Sfas I saw this because I was reading the book called Yalkut Geula Mashiach. 
it, it connects the ideas of, 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 of to find in every parsha the concepts related to Mashiach, because I give a Mashiach class on, on Monday, on Thursdays. And over there, I mean, it was stunning this. Why? He says that there are four, to prod the world through these four stages, everything is accomplished through the tzaddikim. The tzaddikim are the trailblazers. The tzaddikim are the ones who move the world from stage to stage. So there have to be four couples, four sets of tzaddikim who are going to move the world through these four stages. And what are those four couples? Well, the first one needs to move the world to the grave. Because when man is not going to die, he's never going to know God because he's going to think he's a God. So the ultimate, or the first stage is to bring man down to the humility, probably, again, he doesn't give much explanation. But the first stage is that man needs to die. And the pioneers who took the initiative to do this, and you're going to like this, the pioneers who took the initiative to do this was the first couple of tzaddikim, tzaddik and tzaddikis, that was Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava knew they would be shamed the rest of their life. They're going to have to bear the stain and the stigma that they're the ones who caused death, but it was for a higher purpose. And the higher purpose was because those that are born, those that are alive, need to die. Fine. And they let everybody down six feet below. Then, what happens next? Those that are dead need to come alive again. Who were the ones who will move the world, who caused that rectification? That's Avram and Sarah. Meaning Avram and Sarah purified, began the... How does that work? How do you bring the dead to come alive again? The answer is you have to eternalize the body. You have to connect the physical to eternal life. That comes about through physical mitzvahs. The ones who began the process of mitzvah observance is Avram and Sarah. So by Avram and Sarah living, and Avram, and Avram reaches the zenith of this by his bris milah, in which godliness is carved out in his physical body. So that's the whole point, the sanctification of physicality. And then it reaches even a higher point when he's ready to sacrifice his son Yitzchak. I mean, the, the, the sublimation of the physical and attaching it to God reaches its highest point together, Avram and Sarah together. So they bring, lead, they're the pioneers to the next stage. To do what? To make those that are dead come alive. Following? Those that are dead come alive, stage number two. Stage number three, the day of judgment. Who leads us to the day of judgment? That's Isaac, that's Yitzchak. Because Yitzchak is din, judgment. So Yitzchak, who trembles before God in awe, and in this, what he, his stage and what he's representing is the post-Mashiach time. We know, we know that Yitzchak is futuristic. Then we're going to laugh. According to this, by the way, it just occurred to me this second while I'm standing over here, is that this judgment that we're going to be judged should not be something that should terrorize us and cause us to freeze if this is done by Yitzchak, or Yitzchak means laughter. I think the judgment is a judgment where we get to see how the, the truer meaning in every single episode that happened in our life and why we've been through. And we see the true judge in every element. Nothing is meaningless. Everything has reason. Everything has cause. Everything has such, such great that, that there, is, there is a master plan. And we don't see that until we're, we're giving a reckoning in front of God and we see the whole puzzle. And that's related to Yitzchak, and that's related to laughter. But that's the second couple, Yitzchak and Rivka, le- leading the world into the third stage. And what's the fourth stage? 
the intimacy, the ultimate oneness with Hashem of truly knowing Him, and that's Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu is the ultimate perfect human being, who's the, and it says that Yaakov is the same image like Adam. He looks exactly like Adam Arishon. He comes around full circle. When they begin to step away from Hashem, to be able to come back, but with a much deeper understanding of Elokus, of godliness, as a result of these, of the fall, of the Tchias HaMesim, of these stages. And interesting, the, he, he associates, he just throws something in which the words, the, the Pirkei it says, Leida to know, Lohidia, um, I'm sorry, Leida to know, Lohidia to make known, Ulihivada, and to become known. These are the three names of Yaakov. Yaakov, Yisrael, and Yeshurin. It says, God loves us so much, He called us Yeshurin. These are the three names. This is amazing. And, and, and that's it. And Yaakov represents the ultimate stage. Nachla b'lim etzarim. A knowledge and a oneness with Hashem. And then, they already, they accomplished it in a nutshell. Now, it needs to, now it needs to materialize over the next few thousand years for humanity to go through step by step for this purification to happen. Now the book of Svasemis is very bekitzer, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't elaborate. Oh, so again, I, I, again, that's my interpretation of what he's saying. But in any case, I do want to say one thing. This gives us an amazing idea, and he does add this, on Kiryas Arba. The Ma'aras HaMachpeh, where is it? It's in Kiryas Arba. What does Kiryas Arba mean? Where the four couples are buried. What's the big to do that our four couples buried there? That's ah, huge. This is the sum totality of all of history. Do you realize what's going on at that Ma'ara Samachpela? Who you have over there? You have over here the synopsis of all of life. You begin with Adam and Chava who take the world down into death. We have Ad, Avram and Sarah who bring Tchias HaMesim. You have Yitzchak who brings us to the ultimate judgment. And Yaakov who brings us to the ultimate state of complete oneness with our Creator after we come to know Him through the, uh, through the, through the judgment and through everything we've been through. So that's Kiryas Arba. And he says that's a tikkun on the river that goes out of Aden and that forks into four rivers which means all of life gets disconnected. The world becomes separated from its source. The world loses its awareness of where, who our mother is, who our father is, who birthed us. We don't have that knowledge. We became disconnected. Misham yipared. From there there is a period, there is a separation. Now to fix that four rivers, in which the sages associate the four rivers with the four exiles, with all the tsaris and all the breakdown that there is in the world, the rectification of all of that is Kiryas Arba, these four couples, and that is when Mo'ara Samach who Chevron, Chevron actually means attachment. It's the world reaches ultimate chibur and attachment back to the Ebishter. Fine. This is what the Sfasem says. So now I'd like to take this into the second phase of our class tonight and read to you a statement of, based on this idea that Adam and Chava and that Avram and Sarah brought a tikkun. And I just want to conclude just, just, just one, one idea. That's why um, Avra, Sarah gets buried in Mara Samachpela because she's going to bring life to the place of death and actually... What the Sfasema says is that Adam and Chava now became a little bit alive. I mentioned that earlier. Why? Because the only reason why, it says that after Neshama leaves the body, there's a little bit of soul left in the body. It's called Kusta de Chiyusa. 
there is a tiny droplet of life that always remains in the body. And the reason for that is because in order for it to come alive again, it needs to stay alive. See, God, the resurrection of the dead is happening because there's a spark of life. What's dead is dead. The reason why there is life after the resurrection is because God is just fanning the flames of life that's there already. We learned the other night in a mimer, we learned this I think two weeks ago, Thursday night in a Hasidic discourse, that, that um, the Tchias the, HaMesim the, uh, the is going to come from dew. Dew that's going to descend from a very, very deep place, from a place of infinite divine pleasure. From Gvuris to Atik, from the intense pleasure that God has of Himself, whatever that means. It's life in its most intensity. And when a droplet of that touches a spark, what happens to that spark? It's touched by life in its most, in its most potent. But that's because there's a spark there. If there's no spark there, if it's dead, dead, there's nothing to resurrect. Now, so he says, therefore, like this. Adam and Chava, in their sin, they taka died, and they died completely. But when Avram and Sarah made a tikkun in Trias Amesim, which means they gave them the... That's probably what Avram really said to him. You know, he gave them besura of Trias Amesim, and that's why God... That's what calmed... <laughs> what's... Um, Adam and Chava down to go lay back down again because they, they said, you know, you're going to get up again. By that, by, by that, they imbued. They gave them now because they, because Trias and Mason became now a reality. They uncovered the... So now they too got this kusta de chiyusa, this teeny bit of life and that's the meaning of what we said earlier, vayakam. That, that they got up. The field got up and not only the field got up, the people inside that were dead became a little bit alive, which is, which is really awesome. Now, this idea that Adam and Chava, I'm sorry, that Avram and Sarah did a tikkun, and particularly Sarah, because Sarah is the one that's going down first, before Avram. It, it, it makes, how does it fit? Like when, we would think it's Avram and Sarah together, but really it's Sarah more than Avram. Why? Because Kabbalistically it always discusses that Avram and Sarah are body and soul. Avram is soul and Sarah is body. The Zohar uses the analogy. And being that the rectification that needs to happen over here is in the body, so it's Sarah who carries it down. I mean, through Avram, because obviously it's because the, the body is attached to the soul, but it actually has to be a tikkun in, with guf and through guf. With the body and through the body, fine. But here's a fascinating Zohar, where the Zohar says in this week's parsha about the rectification of the sin of Adam and Chava, and its relationship to Sarah. It says like this, um, Tochazi, come and see. Hear these words. Tochazi, come and see. Chava, oses chava la'alma. Chava came to the world. Is dapkis pahai chivya. She encountered the, sta- the snake. She came down into the world and the snake got a hold of her. The primordial snake. Nochash hakadmoini is called. Va'atl be'zahama. And he inserted venom into her. The venom of death. V'garmis moysa la'alma. And he caused death Death to the world, Ula Baila, and to her husband. To the whole world, and to the husband, and of course to herself. Fine. Asis Sarah, Sarah came. Nachsis, she went down as well. Just like Chava went down into the world, Sarah also took the plunge. She also went down. 
the Salkis, but the difference between Sarah and Chava was that when Chava went down, she was encountered the snake, and the snake entangled her in his web, and he inserted his venom in her, and she never recovered from that bite, from that venomous bite of the snake. Sarah came down, and she too went down to deal with the snake. When, when she was taken down to Egypt, and she was taken to Paro's house, Paro is a continuation of the primordial snake of Nachash HaKadmoini, she went down into the, into the, into the, uh, the den, or the, whatever you call it, the crocodile's uh, lair, or whatever, and Veloy is Dapkisba, but it did not, the snake could not get a hold of her. Komodat Amit, what does it say? Vayal Avram and Mitzrayim, that Avram went up from Egypt, he and his wife. They went down. It's not. She made herself vulnerable. She did. It's not like she protected herself and she didn't take the risk. She went down to the same place Chava went. But she was able to go down and come back up again. Now there was one more person between Adam and Sarah who made an attempt to fix it but wasn't, didn't accomplish this. Who was this other person between Adam and Sarah? Chava, again, between Chava and Sarah, who tried to fix this, but failed in, in trying to make this rectification, Noach came to the world. And Noach attempted to fix the sin of Chava. And what did he do? He poured himself a little lachayim. He had himself a little cup of wine. And his taking of the cup of wine, of making, planting immediately a vineyard after the mabel, because Noach felt Time has come to rectify the sin of Adam and Chava. But the problem was, it didn't work out that well. He drank from the wine. And he became drunk. And he laid uncovered. He was exposed and the whole thing happened. Interesting. So Noach makes an attempt and he's unsuccessful. Chava is successful. I'm sorry, Sarah is successful in rectifying the sin of Adam. And the Zohar says, because of this, we begin the Avram since an Avram and Sarah did not get the klipa, the unholy could not get a hold of them. Begin kach, for that reason, Sarah Sarah merited supernal life. La to her, to her husband. Ulebina fits well with what we just learned, eternal life, supernal life. Supernal life is eternal life. So Sarah brings about this tikkun, and she merits the higher life, and, and that's the meaning, vayehi chayai Sarah. And who is the first, first person to live? Is Sarah. Because everybody else who's alive, their life is still the weak life, that Chava and Adam are inheriting to their children, even though they lived to a thousand years. But every moment of that life was a life that was half dead. Why? Because death was coming. Sarah and, 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 and <clears throat> Sarah, because she did a tikkun and the chait, so even though, again, all of her children also, till Mashiach comes, there's still death, but that's chitzonius, that's external. Because even when we die, we know we're coming back again. So therefore, what? Her life is real life because she's, she, she extracted herself from the curse. She did the tikkun on the chait of, of this and therefore she's no more and her life is real life. And then it says, the uh, and therefore, hers is life.
So to understand this idea, what is going on over here? So I'd like to share a discourse, but we're going to do mamish a tzimtzum, 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 a kitzer of a kitzer of a kitzer, a very, very short idea to understand this from the fifth Chabad Rebbe whose birthday is today, Reb Shalom Doiv Ber of Lubavitch. His discourses are deep, 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 and even deeper. And um, tonight, I'd like to share just a little idea of what is this, what did Chava want and why did Chava fail? What did Noyach do to tr- with a cup of wine to try to fix that? And how did Sarah accomplish exactly that and, and bring about the Tikkun? And the idea just is simple. We know that the sin of the eight Adas, of the tree of knowledge, was that after they ate from the tree of knowledge, they became self-aware. Before, and here's where we're going to go to the, what I began the class with the dedication today. So we're coming around for a full circle. The sin of the eight hadas was self-awareness. Until they didn't eat from that tree, they were not aware of themselves. They were kind of part of the infinite flow of life. And there was no sense of I am. And it's like, you know, is a tree aware that the, that the tree is a tree? It's a, just a tree. It gives its fruits. It does what it does. A human being has his job, caretaker, maker, doer of the world, running, managing, but without a self-awareness. And everything then becomes just a continuous flow. There is no ego. There is no self. There's just a... a. And you see, you see how the, the, the sin affected both the approach to the sin... The and the actual sin and the effects of the sin are all related to self-awareness. Let's begin from the end, working backwards. The, um, the effect of the sin is suddenly they're uncomfortable with their nakedness. They're suddenly aware of themselves, very, very conscious of themselves. You ever see a two-year-old run through the house without a diaper, without anything? Mamish like the day, like the like other Marisha before the sin running across the house, oh, not a two-year-old, a one-year-old, let's say, a little baby, they're wobbling and they're running across the room, that little whatever, and they're, they're, they're tiny and they're running around, and, and, and what? There's no, there's no awareness, and they're happy, and everything is good, there's no self-awareness. They're just as naked as an adult, but there's no self-awareness, so, no, it's fine, good. When you become self-aware, you become uncomfortable with your body, with yourself, with your thing. Right? So that's what happened after the sin, self-awareness. But leading up to the sin, you also see that suddenly Chava becomes aware of herself and her desire to fulfill, her, to find fulfillment. The woman sees, Vatera Isha, the woman sees, Kitova eats. The, 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 the fruit is good to eat. Kitaiva Huleinayim, it's beautiful to look at. The Nechmad Lamarej, it's going through all the senses. She's suddenly aware of her own senses, of her own self. And of all sensories, and she wants to feel it all, and 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 deeper than that, it says in 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 um, they also the deepest element of that that what they wanted over here wasn't just to feel and to sense and eat a delicious fruit. They wanted knowledge. They wanted knowledge. Eating from the tree of knowledge of of Eitz would give them knowledge, but the problem is there's nothing wrong with knowledge. The problem is when you when I need knowledge, I want knowledge, I need to understand. But if the understanding is just matter of fact, that you understand that I I I need I need to feel, I need to know, I need to sense, I need to have pleasure, I need. 
And the reason this all came, so you see, the, the actual sin itself, the, instead of, see, God had given them a job. And guess what? They were busy with their job. And their job was to take care of the garden. And I'll tell you an amazing thing. And when they were eating, when they were in the garden, and I'm sure there were many beautiful trees, and there were fruits. And God even told them they could eat from the fruits. And guess what? In matter of factly, while they were working, they ate. I don't know if they did, but they could have eaten, or they should have eaten, and they would have eaten, and they would have delighted in the taste of the food, but everything would have been matter of factly. It's not like suddenly I am going to have pleasure now. I am going to fulfill what is going to make me feel good. So you realize, you have a job. You're being put down in the, in, the, in, in the field to take care. Suddenly you're not on your job. You're not doing what you should be doing because you lost yourself in who? In yourself and in your own pleasure. And suddenly everything else died. And that's why when God says to them, where are you? And then they say they hide. And God says, who told you? And I think always, I always understood it that God was saying, who cares naked, naked, this and that. Did I give you a job? You're supposed to stand there? Where are you? Are you there? Did I ever tell you that if you're naked, you shouldn't stand there? I mean, it doesn't make a difference. You have a job, do your job. And others, be lost in your mission, in what you're doing, and don't be so self-aware of yourself. But that's what happened. You know where it came to them? It came to them by the snake. Because the snake, if you want to know what the snake is, snake is Mr. Self-Awareness. That is snake. Snake is a self-absorbed entity. The snake is someone who's caught up in his own metzias, in his own, in its sense of self. That's why we're going to say that. That's why this, this, the, 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 the snake is the most deep, depressed creature that there is, because together, along with self-awareness, comes depression and comes sadness. Because the idea, you know, those people that will tell you that they're pursuing happiness, and what's the pursuit that I'm looking at? I'm pursuing happiness. The most detrimental thing to happiness is the pursuit of happiness. If you're running around looking for happiness, I can sign the paper that you will never be happy one day in your life. If you forget about yourself and about being happy, you might be happy. Happiness cannot be a conscious desire of a want that I want to be happy. It doesn't work that way. Happiness comes when you forget about yourself and you're just lost in something. Their self-consciousness and their self-awareness uh, was the fall, okay? And that self-consciousness and awareness is really death. Now, there's a lot to talk about this, and we discussed it a little bit in other classes. But, here's the, but why did they eat that? Why did they eat? And the answer is, you see, so what's the opposite of self-awareness? If there's no self-awareness, and they, let's say they're doing just their job, they're in Gan Eden and they're just... You know, I don't know what uh, he was told to, 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 to work the garden. And the sages say to do mitzvahs, but simply to work the garden. You know, he's raking the leaves. He's the gardener. He has the big push. He's pushing Avram. Uh, uh, Avram's, um, Adam Arishon is pushing the lawnmower in Gan Eden. He's watering. He's doing. He's doing that. Uh, okay. And if he's not self-aware of the beauty of the garden and of all the lights of the garden, so he's just like a tree. He's just like a stone. He's just... So obviously he's doing everything you should be doing, but he's not, simply you would say, he's, there's no pleasure in it. There's no delight. There's no him. He's like a robot. He's like kind of just part of the machinery. He's part of the mechanics, part of the machinery. Now is that okay? Is that the way God wants us to serve him? When you're serving Hashem, is it okay to have pleasure in the service? Is it okay to feel delight in doing a mitzvah? Is it okay to feel happy in doing the mitzvah? 
and delight and pleasure? Or are you supposed to be so unaware of yourself and so nullified and so nothing and all you are is a peg in the machine? So you're part of, you're needed, you have your job, just do your job. And I would say in these words, shut up and do your job. Is that what God wants? So we know it's not that way. The Torah gets very upset at us if we don't have simcha, if we don't have joy. Tachas, the Pasuk says that I'm going to send you into exile because you did not serve God with joy. Tachas, because you did not serve God with joy and with gladness of heart. And we know that ifdu as Hashem besimcha. And it also says another Pasuk, ifdu as Hashem beira, serve God with fear. But vigilu, and delight was the continuation, birada, and delight with a tremble. But delight, God wants you, us to have pleasure in the serving of Him. Not only that, it is so vital and is so important, simcha shal mitzvah, that it says that any mitzvah you do, um, and you don't do it with joy, it, the repercussions of the mitzvah are great. They're great. Every repercussion of every mitzvah. You do a mitzvah, it has an influence to draw down godly vitality, to draw Hashem's light into the world. That's wonderful and that's great. Do a mitzvah with joy, and the effects of that mitzvah, in, in terms of illuminating and pouring godliness into the cosmos and into the world, is not just, is, is exponentially greater. Not 10 times, not 20. It's infinitely greater. A mitzvah with joy is so much more powerful than a mitzvah that's done without joy. And in that discourse that I'm not discussing with you, there's three pages of deep philosophical, Kabbalistic explanation of why a mitzvah with joy has so much deeper power in unleashing divine light and un- in, in, in causing a flow of holiness in the world. Wait. So, if you have to be happy, there has to be some kind of an awareness of what's going on and of yourself. You can't be... So how can you be happy if there's no awareness of self? And, 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 and have the pleasure, the pleasure to, to serve. You have to have some kind of a hergasha, some kind of a feeling. And that's the truth why, why Chava went to eat from that tree. She went to eat from the tree to increase her ability to feel and her ability to feel, to have pleasure in her service of Hashem. That's what she was taking from the snake. It wasn't just, I'm going to go eat an, uh, a fruit and have pleasure. She was have, and according to some opinions, what was it? It was wine. Eshkol anavim, it was wine. And the problem was they didn't wait to Kiddush. They ate it too early, Friday. But they poured, and what does wine do? Wine opens up your sensors. Wine is delightful. You drink a cup of wine, you're feeling good. It's, it's, it, 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 a wine is not a suppression of self. Okay, It's not like they give you a, 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 a green uh, shake to drink. Uh, you have to drink that because, you know, whatever. It's healthy. Kale and who knows what juice. And just drink that so you get your vitamins for the day. That's a suppression. I got to do that because I got I to gotta lose weight and I'm drinking this big, green, yucky, I don't know what. I know he likes it, but whatever. And, and, and I'm doing that. Wine is the sense of flavor, of taste, of pleasure. So uh, she went and she took some wine. It's to open herself up to the experience. That's wonderful. So how does it work? So for simcha, you need that. So here is a very delicate balance. It's a very, 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 very delicate balance. You see, the real joy, the real simcha, and real joy 
comes together with humility. Um, self-awareness, strong self-awareness is the opposite of joy. Real joy comes together. It says in the Pasuk, Vayoisfu anavim b'simcha. That the anavim, uh, the, the humble ones, uh, will add b'simcha with joy. That simcha comes along with anava, with humility. Okay, the two go together. So let's uh, try to explain that a little bit. How does simcha and humility come together? But here's, the, 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 we have to, we have to define. It doesn't mean that you're numb. Numbness, what we're really going to get to today is that we're going to figure out that there are four, four types of experiences. One is you're, 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 you're a peg in the machine. You don't feel anything. You're just doing your job. You're not aware of yourself at all. You're not aware of what you're doing, of what you're accomplishing. No one is asking you to feel, to do. Just do what you got to do. It's like people that will put up in the factories, in the factories, or the sweater factories in, 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 in you know, the 1920s. Just get onto the assembly line and do your job and keep on doing. No one asks you if you're happy, if you're not happy, if you feel yourself, you don't, you like it, you don't like it, it's stuffy, it's not. Do your work. Finished. Now, in a sense, Adam and Chava, Chava was feeling herself a little bit like kind of in that state before the sin. Okay, so you need to get yourself some feeling. But here, there is a very big and fine line of what is healthy feeling and what is not healthy feeling. Healthy, healthy feeling and pleasure, which as we said before, brings joy and which causes your mitzvah to be the most potent simcha and the most potent joy, is when you have the feeling of what is being accomplished without the feeling of yourself in it. Okay, what is being accomplished, you have, to, you have to feel. You have to even know that you're the one who's involved in doing this amazing thing. You know that, this is, that you're the one who's involved in doing it. But you don't have the, ex, the, the, the intense feeling of, look at me, look at me, look how great I am, look how super I am, look how fantastic I am, I've done. For example, let's talk humility, the idea of humility. Moshe Rabbeinu, we know, was the most humblest of all people. Moshe Rabbeinu did not know that he was the one who brought down manna from heaven. Moshe did not know that he split a rock and brought water out of it. Moshe did not know that he took out two million people out of Egypt, brought ten plagues, took the mightiest army and empire and brought them to their knees, changed the world dynamics forever, spoke to God face to face, fought two giants, Sichon and Og. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Moshe knew all those things. But the idea of Moshe's humility was two things. And I, we, we, there's two ideas over here. Number one is when Moshe knew that all these things were not his. He did not do anything to this. It's all given godly gifts that are given to him. So the moment you're not taking the credit, it's not, there, is, there isn't that swelling of self. It's matter of fact, yeah. So God gave me three million ounces, three million whatever uh, measures of wisdom, of holiness, of spiritual capacity and potential. So what? And this person, God gave 3,000. I may be, and Moshe thought that if God would give him 3 million uh, uh, measures of all this spiritual power and this to someone else, they probably would have done a much better job than him. So he knew of his talents, he knew of his abilities, but they're not, there is no sense of this is mine and I am and I deserve, therefore I should be given credit. The idea that you have qualities and that you know, nothing wrong with knowing you have qualities, but as long as it's not, it's not rooted with a, with, a, with a sense of my personal accomplishments, which I have done and which I have done, that's where, that's where we go wrong. That's where, where their arrogance comes in. Okay? So, it's okay. so um, for instance, 
When a yid, for example, if someone is 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 pious and have a muna, have a muna, they know they're a good Jew. Okay, you know, you know, you're serving God. You know, you're a good Jew. So you say to yourself, well, it's difficult times. It's really difficult times right before Mashiach comes. And it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to become involved with so many other things. And I'm a good Jew. Pretty awesome, though. Pretty cool. Look at me. I show up to classes. I learn. I daven. I do my, my daily shiurim. I keep tzedakah. I'm a pretty decent human, good human being. Well, maybe did you ever think that 97% of that is emuna that was planted and given to your soul by Avram Avinu and your soul has it naturally? It's just handed down from generation to generation. You just are filled with that amuna. I ask Avram Avinu's amuna is so strong that it's still impacting three and a half thousand years later. Or you're going to say, how come this person is not? I don't know, for whatever reason, the pathway of Avram's amuna to my neshama is wider than it is to his. For whatever reason. Did I ever do something about that? That's not me. Love. I love God. I'm excited to do a mitzvah. Where's that love coming from? That too is Yerusha. We have an inheritance from Avram. So what is mine? What did you do to it? Nothing. Our credit is probably the messes that we do. So when you feel that way, so you're just happy. You're happy with what? Wow, you lucked out. I have a muna. I have inspiration. I love being a Jew. I daven. I learn. But this is all. But you're happy. See, again, there is an understanding that you're doing all of this. But there's also an understanding that it's not mine. It's, but there's something deeper than that. And that is, it has to do with being batal be'etzem. Batal be'etzem means that essentially, your essential character is one that you don't make a to-do of yourself. It's a very important line. There are people who essentially make a to-do of themselves. They are very self-important and they're very important in their own eyes. And then there is a character, that's someone that's, he's bottle bad, some, anything that he comes, so hot, he, like, you go, he did the most amazing thing and then he's, he's out in the corner, people want to go over and he's like, but not in a fake humility. It's like, there's nothing that, that, that he, I don't know, it's hard to explain it. Now, I, I, I want to say, how does one come to a state of being batal be'etzim? I'd say one thing. Uh, learning a lot of Hasidis helps to this. Hasidis is constantly emphasizing bittel, 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 bittel. If you accomplish a lot of good things and you don't learn Hasidis, it generally stokes the ego. It generally causes inflation of self. Not in an external way where you walk around saying everybody, but deep inside you feel very accomplished and very... Hasidis, just its, its words, its teachings, no matter which Hasidis you're learning, no matter what Hasidis you're learning, the teachings of the Balshemtos and the students are based and, and saturated with bittel with the nullification of self. When you learn it, it creates within you an entire mindset of bittel. And amongst Hasidim, when someone makes any kind of statement that hints to a little bit of self-importance, if anybody knew the reaction of whether it's Kotzker Hasidim or Chabad Hasidim or Hasidim, any, to someone who showed a little bit of, mm, take a look, it was so nauseating, and it was so dim, it was so dim, dismissed in such a powerful Hasidus. If I was to boil down Hasidus to one word, it's bittel. That's what it is. It's all nullification and bittel, and that's why Hasidim are always known as the happy ones, because where there is bittel, you're happy. Why? Because if it's good, first of all, if things are going good for you, you're so happy. Why are you so happy? Because you know that you didn't deserve any of that. And you're getting it. It's like a free, you got something free. When is a person really happy? 
really, really happy. When you get, when you, when you feel you got something, like suddenly you didn't earn it. When you earn something, you feel satisfaction. But jubilant joy comes when you got something, a present, something came, you didn't expect it, boom, someone sent you a gift. Of this. You, mamish, you were stuck, you didn't know how you're going to make them get this money or that, and suddenly you got a, a check from a rich uncle or something like this. It really, because it's a matana, it's a gift. If a person doesn't feel that they deserve something and they get something, the joy is wonderful, is great. If on the other hand, let's go to the other hand, if on the other hand, something difficult and harsh is happening to you, and it's, it's what? And you're going through some hard times. So if you're full of yourself, you're full of complaints. How dare something this happen? Because I'm, I'm, I, me, after all that that I have learned, after all that I have davened, after all the tzedakah that I have given, after all the good that I have done, this happens to me. It didn't happen to the guy who sits next to me in shul, and it happened to me. How dare this happen to me? So you need to like use all kinds of, of, of things and methods of the same. Someone who's be'etzam a chassid, someone who's be'etzam not, not, not um, uh, uh, pumped up in his own in his own self, but quite on the contrary, feels like like <laughs> like everything I have is a gift. So if things are a little rough, okay, who expected any better? It, the perfect example, if anybody wants to use an example of someone who is the perfect metaphor for that, look at Reb Zushi of Anapali. Read about him. He, everything about him is like good, is good, bad, and you're dealing with the greatest simcha and joy. So again, so what do you have over here? So it, so. You're happy, what are you happy? You feel the tremendous accomplishment that you're doing when you're doing a mitzvah. Accomplishing unbelievable things, but you're not, it's not about you, it's more about what's happening. Godliness is great, it's awesome. Being a Jew is awesome. A mitzvah is awesome. I'm, I'm part of it, fine, that's great. So being in part, that's the exhilaration, that's the joy, that's the simcha. That's a simcha without self, and that's good simcha. Problem is, that when you're taking wine and you're beginning to try to bring out more of self, you can go down the wrong roads. And instead of the subject matter becoming something you're sensing more and feeling, you feel more, I, you feel yourself more than what the Indian is. In other words, instead of feeling that a hundred pages of Talmud were studied, you feel more that I learned a hundred pages of Talmud. Instead of, look at this amazing thing, another hundred pages of Gemara were studied in God's world and God's name. So you realize what, the question is, what, is, what are you shining the spotlight? On what's happening, on the accomplished, or on the fact that you're doing it. And if you feel yourself in it, that's horrible klipa. If you feel the, 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 the goodness of it, that's avodah Hashem besimcha, and that's powerful. And that's very good. So whatever it is, Noach tried to fix the sin of Chava by taking wine. And we see what wine does? Wine can make you happy. And you see something interesting, when people get happy with wine, there are sometimes situations, when a person gets very happy and very jubilant, that they stop being so self-aware. They go the opposite. They'll become, they'll, they'll, they'll reach out to people, they'll dance with people they generally would never go close to because it's below their dignity. But now they're like Simchas Torah, they're dancing with everybody. Everybody's equal. There isn't all these um, social differences between one person and the other person. They'll grab so, like someone who generally they wouldn't want to associate with because it's below their dignity. But now that they drank wine, it like freed them from that prison of self and now they become more unified. Fine, that can happen. But there's another thing what happened to Noah was, Noah tried to fix it with the wine, but he got another kind of wine, not the wine that makes you joyous, but the wine that makes you drunk. 
Now, the wine that makes you drunk also knocks out self-awareness, but it knocks out self-awareness by destroying your mind and your... And your, and your. So in other words, it's like people who want to get rid of their, of their stiffness and they go on drugs. So it's not like you're freeing yourself. See, people, they get, they get high. They're looking to free themselves from their self-awareness, which is killing them. Their self-awareness, which is making them miserable people. So they're looking for a puff. So they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna do drugs or whatever it is. But that kind of elimination is not what rectifies the sin of the eight sadas. That kind of vision just knocks out your awareness completely by numbing you and by destroying you. So that's not it either. So Noach made that mistake. Sarah is the perfect person who went down into self-awareness but was able to balance it to be true. And there's a long discussion in the discourse of exactly what that is. I am just going to use a little, little example. He says that kingship is a very interesting... Sarah is kingship. Sarah means minister. She represents the attribute of kingship. And in kingship you see in a very, very powerful balance. A king, a true king, is someone who walks into the room and everybody gives them like amazing respect. Cheering, clapping. Uh, People are completely, you know, uh, like the person is everything. But at the same time, King David, for instance, is the most humblest of all people. So you have, or very humble, you have an interesting blend of beingness and exaltedness, and raising yourself up high, but at the same time, humility. Kingship is not arrogance. Kingship is not arrogance, unless the person who's becoming king is essentially an arrogant person, a very arrogant person. But if someone is not a very arrogant person, and they become, and and, and the kingship itself is an elation of self, but that's because it's not like, I'm king, look how smart I am. Look how, how no. It's just, um, there's just an elevation. There's just an elatedness. I, 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 I'm not, I don't want to go into politics. I want to, show, I want to share one interesting thought. Uh, it doesn't make a difference on which side of the issue you are in terms of you're happy of, of, of Trump winning the election or not winning the election. But I, when I was learning the mimer, when I was learning the discourse... And I was, I was trying to get a little bit of the sense of kingship and uh, talk about, yes, arrogant. Persia generally will say, yeah, very arrogant. But I did notice something that really, really, really was interesting. I was up late at night because I was very, very interested in hearing the acceptance speech which, or, or the defeat speech or whatever, which was going to come from each side. Obviously, it was very exciting. So I, need, I was very, very anxious to see what was going to happen. I'm watching. I'm watching the news. So then when finally he comes out to make the acceptance speech, Trump, um, so it, to me, again, maybe because I was looking favorably, I don't know, but to me, there was something very, very powerful. Here you have a man who didn't expect to win the election, okay? Now he's walking up to a stage in which the greatest honor ever given to a human being, I mean, to be the leader of the world, to be the leader of the America, to be the United States uh, guy. And again, he's not a guy who's used to walking in the White House. He's a guy like, okay, he's a billionaire, but he's not... You see the way he's walking up there. You see elation. You, you can see in his face. I'm, I'm, using, I'm trying to give, find examples for Hasidus. You see an, a person in his most elevated moment possible. Just pure elevation. But what I saw is not a hint of arrogance. There was such a beautiful blend of a humility and of a thing. Now, again, 
Is, in, is there no arrogance when he was campaigning and all of that? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when the crown was put on his head. If you can go back and look at that speech, there was something so magnificently beautiful of a blend of a presence and the strongest presence, but yet a, 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 a powerful sense of servitude. Both blended in a very, very powerful... That's a unique element of malchus, of kingship. Now the ultimate, obviously, of this is in Moshiach, not in any, any king, but the ability to be able to have a self, but even the self is a servant. See, that's the idea. You have a self, but even the self is a servant. So you have a self, and, you, and, you, and, and that's what we were talking about earlier, about the blend of Hanukkah and New Year Day, which again is just hashkach, a protest that it was discussed over here. Have yourself something, but treat yourself, but don't become self-absorbed in that treating of yourself. Let that pleasure of treating yourself be purely because, yeah, every, everyone needs a happy moment, and this is good for me, so if I give myself something that will make me now relax and feel good, that's good, but it's not with, I need a book, and I need to feel happy, and right now I'm going to make myself, it's not that, it's, it's just a treat. And that's the way we're all going to live after Mashiach comes, is that we're, we're going to be in a perfect state of of simcha, of joy, of laughter, without the dangers of feeling. We don't have to subjugate ourselves a bitl, bitl, bitl. We can have a metzias, you can have a self, but that self is not in a klipa state of self. It's, in a state, it's a state of self that is perfectly one with a greater reality. But yet, it's, it's you. It's you in a relationship with Hashem. Without the, 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 the uh, stuffiness of ego and that. May we merit for Oz Yomoli Yitzchak Pino, may it happen, take off a miyad mamish. And again, these are many mamish, my thoughts. I do want to emphasize because that's what I saw, but again, if everybody has their own vision and what you see, okay, Mela. And I'm not exactly sure it's a perfect marshal, but that was a thought that I had when I saw that, and it particularly connects to what we're learning tonight. So may we merit to see uh, the resurrection and true life will begin.
Thank you. 